I was like, I'm on a college campus. Of course, it's getting weird and strange. We have a yearly hash bash, which is celebrating marijuana. Of course, this is happening. It's Ann Arbor. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Box Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. I joined as usual on Tuesday by, by Ezra Klein. Sarah Cliff is out reporting, uh, burning reporting. the shoe leather or whatever you call it. Yeah, I think it's burning shoe leather. I think it's she's lighting her shoes on fire. I think that's how you report. Um, <laughs> I don't know much about well, it. Well, to be you, honest. you do it because what you're doing is you're 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 burning an offering to the reporting gods. I thought it was to stay warm while you're out in the field. Um, <laughs> no, so we 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 have. Uh, <laughs> Senior politics reporter Jane Coaston with us to talk over um, political correctness on campus. We're going to talk about Larry Bartels' latest paper, breaking down where the two political parties stand in 2018. But we also wanted to talk about some of the chaos in the Trump administration. We we had a wild morning this morning where uh, I was walking to work and I saw reports that Rex Tillerson was fired. Uh, then Rex there were, it. Then it's finally happened. Long awaited. Right. Not totally unexpected, but a little odd. It came it came sort of without warning this morning. Then not unexpected but surprising. Then the White House said that he had actually been fired on Friday in part I think to knock down the supposition that Tillerson was fired because he said mean things about Russia yesterday. Uh, but then the State Department has said very clearly on the record the undersecretary for public diplomacy has said that Tillerson had no idea that this was coming that he found out about it from Donald Trump's tweet apparently not even from the Washington Post purse alert which is how I found out about it but from the Trump tweet 5 minutes later that he was fired you know completely without warning that's this, really crazy if true yes and this is one of these things where you know Accounts differ. It's going to be somebody's word against somebody else's. But it's like it's hard to see why Rex Tillerson, an undersecretary of state for public affairs, would be lying about this. Then between those two incidents, we found out that John McEntee, who is Trump's uh, body man, was fired and escorted by security from the premises on Monday. Which is not good. Uh, apparently, he left his jacket and someone had to go back and get it for him. There was absolutely no warning. And especially since he had he'd been with Trump since 2015. And it, it's interesting. Uh, John Kelly kind of instituted a new security clearances regime after the Rob Porter debacle. And I'm very curious to see if this is potentially related. I've already checked Pacer in two states, so we'll find out. Can I read the statement from the undersecretary, Steve Goldstein? Because I think you never read a statement like this after a firing of a major American political figure. I am astonished that this is an on-the-record named piece of work. So this is from State Department Undersecretary Steve Goldstein. The secretary, referring here to Tillerson, had every intention of staying because of the critical progress made in national security. He will miss his colleagues at the Department of State and the foreign ministries he has worked with throughout the world. The secretary did not speak to the president and is unaware of the reason, but he is grateful for the opportunity to serve and still believes strongly that public service is a noble calling. We wish Secretary-designate Pompeo well. That is wild. That's that's bananas. They're not even pretending. You remember when Rex Tillerson had to go out and give a press conference and the question was, did you call Donald Trump a fucking moron? And he's like, I mean, who, <laughs> you know, who among and us? didn't say no. 
This is one of these things where he's not even pretending that there was a process here. He's not even pretending that this is okay. They're saying clearly someone else is now putting their name to a statement saying he did not want to leave. He was not prepared. He has not spoken to the president. He doesn't know why he was fired. Aside from everything else, given that Donald Trump's primary public profile before this was somebody who's really good at firing people. He's very bad at firing people. He doesn't like on the the apprentice, you got fired by Donald Trump and he told you why. And that doesn't seem to happen. In his no, right this house. is this is two firings in which pe- the person in question never heard from Trump in the first place. And it's very confusing. And especially with um Mike Pompeo coming in, it's been interesting kind of seeing the right's reaction to that, how it's not that they dislike Pompeo, it's that they're not sure how this all happened in the first place. You know, I pay a lot of attention to conservative political figures and conservative media world, and it seems to be a measure of, we didn't like Tillerson, but we don't like this, so we're just unhappy. Well, why would you be happy with this? <laughs> well, yes, so it's worth, the, the, the musical chairs continue. Rex Tillerson in the statement says he doesn't know why he was fired. Trump did not really explain, but he announced that Mike Pompeo, currently the CIA director, who, you know, is is quite lightly qualified for this job. I would not really that is also the say way I would describe that. that Mike Pompeo, I, I mean, obviously he's been CIA director since Trump's been president, so he... He has some experience now at the, at the top levels of the national security state, but he's not a well-known figure internationally. Uh, Rex Tillerson was a very unorthodox pick who had no familiarity with with the building, no relationship with the president. But the case for him was, look, he has had discussions with secretaries of state and cabinet ministers all around the world for years as a CEO of, of Exxon. Mike Pompeo is not someone who is – known to to world leaders particularly. He was an army officer and then a a businessman and he was recruited um, sort of by Coke Network to be a House candidate in 2010. He won a pretty safe seat there. He served adequately, I would say, in the House of Representatives for a few years. But he wasn't a a central player in the House. He wasn't the kind of guy who would represent congressional Republicans to foreign governments and anything. I mean, the, the Secretary of State before Tillerson was John Kerry, right? The chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, a former nominee of the Democratic Party for president. And before that, Hillary Clinton. Like, that's who you like. That's the level of legislator you tend to pick for that. Bush picked two very experienced, like, foreign policy professionals in in Condoleezza Rice and and Colin Powell. That was the Clinton pattern. It was Obama sort of went back to an older pattern of picking politicians to serve, but they were like the most senior and famous members of the Democratic Party. Uh, Mike Pompeo is not that. His replacement at CIA has been picked is um, Gina Haspel, is her name. Um, So she had just been his deputy. She is best known for her work overseeing the the Black Sites torture program under George W. Bush for uh, destroying videotapes that would have been evidence. So that will be an interesting confirmation hearing. I mean, I assume Republicans have the votes to get all this stuff done. Well, one thing I would note is that I don't think there's a reason to assume that, which is only to say they may have the votes, but By the same token that Tillerson was not informed, there is just no way that the legislative liaison work has been done 
to see, does Rand Paul have problems with Gina Haspel? I mean, and she, particularly given that Republicans have 51 votes in the Senate, John McCain is extremely sick and hates torture. For so a then, completely understandable reasons. Right. And and so then you're 50. Right. So if you hold every other Republican, you're OK because Mike Pence can break the tie. But I just doubt that there's been a lot of work done there. But the, I do want to zoom out on this for a minute to say if this all feels I mean, a week ago we were talking about Gary Cohn leaving. Right. And that was also a big departure that happened somewhat unexpectedly. If this all feels like a lot of people leaving, it really is. Brookings has been keeping the numbers on this. As of Cone leaving, I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I might be off by a percentage point or two, but there's been a 45 or 44 percent turnover rate within the Trump administration uh, um, among his key staff since he started. That is higher than any other president uh, that we have records for at this juncture. So one, we are seeing more turnover in the Trump administration than we've ever seen before. It's now even higher than that with Tillerson. And it's not just these top people. I mean, it is, it's interesting that Gina Haspel is coming in and you see the smoothness of that in a way, right? They're able to name the next person right as they do the other. The reason you're not seeing that with somewhere like Gary Cohn is that his deputy had quit months ago, Jeremy Katz, and they've been losing deputies all over the place within this administration. There's been a huge amount of turnover of the number twos, which you normally don't see. The number twos normally wait out the number ones because they want to become the number ones. But the administration has lost deputy national economic council directors, deputy domestic policy council directors, deputy communication chiefs, right? That's why Hope Hicks was not immediately replaced. It's lost deputy national security advisors. People like Dina Powell are gone. It's lost a bunch of deputy chiefs of staff. You know, the State Department was hollowed out under Tillerson. I mean, for all that Trump did not uh, fire Rex Tillerson in a, in a practically polite uh, or respectful way. Rex Tillerson was a terrible secretary of state who's done tremendous damage to the organization he led. I shed no tears for him going. But this administration is in a state of people call it staff chaos. But I always want to make the point that it's management chaos. People do not want to work for Trump. They do not want to continue working for Trump, but they do not want to come and work for Trump. And also because Trump does not resolve the ideological disputes in his administration, everybody's always trying to knife each other because if they can get their person into a new staff position, they might be able to change the entire direction of American public policy. So this is a very poorly run administration. And this constant chaos inside it uh, is part of it. Yeah, I think it, it really goes to something that there what you were mentioning about how people do not want to work for this administration and do want to do not want to be associated with this, these administrations. And so I think that that goes to challenges that you're seeing across kind of the policy landscape. And you're seeing this with people, you know, who have left months and months ago who are just saying, like, the chaos was obvious and it was unworkable because Trump likes seeing conflict between people. He likes it when people are fighting over things. If one person says A and the other person says B, he doesn't want to have to make a decision. He wants them to battle it out and hopefully the person who says B to just leave. But that's not how you make policy. That's how you make pretty good television. Yeah, you remember uh, in... Uh Dark Knight Returns when Joker yep. like snaps up pool yep. cue and is like, I got room for one of you in my organization. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly. more or less Trump's management strategy. Which, you know, that worked great for Heath Ledger and does not work here. There's a crazy atmospherics of this. But another way to look at that, the sort of slow rollover that you're seeing here is that, you know, when Trump first came in as president, he was a in a 
really unusually weak position for, for a president, right? Like deep in a kind of hole where he had no retinue of loyalists, you know, who were qualified for high-level government jobs and also where he did not have a depth of loyalty on Capitol Hill, right? There wasn't like enormous respect for Donald Trump on Capitol Hill. So the cabinet he appointed was almost like in a, you know, in a European country, you'll have a, a coalition cabinet. Right. And the Trump cabinet was almost like a coalition cabinet between Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell. He had to make something kind of work out. And what he has built over his first year plus of being president is a new era in which he has real allies on Capitol Hill that he didn't have at first. And he knows who his friends are in Republican politics and who he just sort of has to have a, a coexistence with. Rex Tillerson is not somebody who Donald Trump knew, right? Rex Tillerson is somebody who Trump kept vetoing everyone who the Republican establishment wanted him to make secretary of state. And eventually Bob Gates and Condoleezza Rice came up with this idea, right? Hey, you might like Rex Tillerson. And Trump was successfully sold on Tillerson, so he gave Tillerson this job that was acceptable to Senate Republicans, but he never really kind of worked out. Mike Pompeo is somebody who Trump feels has his back. Like, he likes Mike Pompeo. He could have made somebody else secretary of state, but he really picked Pompeo. And if Pompeo is confirmed, that will mean that Trump now has a secretary of state who, like, is a Trump guy, you know? And on Capitol Hill, like we're going to see right now, Bob Corker chairs the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has a very chilly relationship with Trump, even though they've sort of worked on a, on a practical level. But he's going to be gone. So, you know, Corker's going to be gone from the Senate. He will likely be replaced in that seat by Marsha Blackburn, who's a much Trumpier figure. And as chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, probably by Jim Risch from Idaho, who's I don't know, he's nobody, but he has not like spoken up in, in that kind of way. Uh, something that happened last night was Trump very enthusiastically endorsed the House Intelligence Committee's conclusion that not only was there no collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, but the Russians didn't even try to help Trump win the election. And that's like that's a crazy, embarrassing thing for the House Intelligence Committee Republicans to have concluded, right? It's at odds with what every U.S. intelligence agency has has found and with just like common sense look, looking at what happened. There is a growing rapport, right? That is the kind of thing where a year ago we'd be saying, look, Trump and House Republicans, like they're in agreement on tax cuts, on Obamacare repeal, whatever, but they have these points of friction. But now they're like big elements of the Republican Party are taking real steps to eliminate those points of friction. And Trump is gaining the opportunity to elevate the people who have done that into these kind of new positions. Gary Cohn is sort of similar to Rex Tillerson in that he's not like a longtime Trump guy. He's a guy who Trump respected him because he's a businessman and Republicans liked him because he seemed competent. Larry Kudlow, who's being rumored to replace him, is like a guy who Donald Trump knows. It's like we're getting the real Trump team in place for the first time. 
I think in part what we're seeing is an expansion of Trump's base. You know, there there was this whole rhetoric on the right about how Trump's base kind of fighting with congressional Republicans. And it's as if they're starting to reach detente in a sense. You know, you're seeing that in the House and you're seeing that a little bit, not as much in the Senate. But you're seeing this kind of like a, a coming to a general understanding that what the base wants, they're not going to get as quickly as they thought. But you are starting to see some sense of kind of an overall agreement about the general direction of the administration. I think there's something that Representative Adam Schiff said last night on the Rachel Maddow show. Um, and, and Schiff, of course, is the ranking Democrat on the House Intelligence Committee and, and his relationship with his Republican um uh, counterpart, uh, Devin Nunez, is not good, <laughs> I think would be a reasonable way to put that. But he said, and I, I think this goes to what we're talking about here, I think many of us could see that Donald Trump was going to be a very poor president. What we couldn't see is many people would be complicit in that. How many people would be willing to resign their obligations under the Constitution in our system of checks and balances in the service of that deeply flawed president? Our Constitution is only as good as the people who uphold it. And by shutting down this investigation, it shows that the people upholding it are really not living up to their responsibility. And, and I, I do think this speaks to, to, to this broader point, which is Trump is assembling more of his team. He's been very clear. I also was so amazing when he talked about how he thought Eric Holder was a really good attorney general because President Obama kept breaking the law and Eric Holder kept protecting him. Now, that is not my view of what happened, but the fact that that is Trump's view of what happened is just remarkable. Like the job of the attorney general is to act as the president's lawyer. You really do get the sense that if Trump could just name Michael Cohen to be attorney general, he 100 percent would and would think that would make perfect sense. So Trump is getting more of his people into positions of power. There's talk about H.R. McMaster's possibly being out soon for John Bolton. He has a increasingly quiescent Republican uh, House and Senate majority. The amount of opposition to him is going down, not up, as Jane says. And so, you know, we're, we're in a point where it's more and more of an untrammeled version of Donald Trump. I mean, Matt, you had a good piece today about taking the Stormy Daniels uh, investigation, if that's what it should be called at this point, seriously, with the idea being that, you know, what this is really about is Donald Trump's corruptibility. And one thing here is that the degree to which Trump's corruptibility is a problem for him is about whether or not particularly the Congress decides to make it a problem. And you're really seeing a Congress that is more and more in his pocket. And I mean, and that goes to the, the House intelligence thing. I remember when Sean Spicer came out right as the administration began, the, that first thing he did where he came out and said, biggest inaugural crowds ever. And we are like, that's the craziest thing a human being has done on television in a long time. And there's a, an interesting piece by The Economist, Tyler Cowen, at that point, where he said, this is how authoritarian regimes work. They have these loyalty tests and you have to go out and say absurd things that will reduce your um, viability, say, in the private market or to other people. But it's to show that you're loyal. And I think you should look at what the House Intelligence Committee did as more or less the same thing. They could have come out, you know, with something trying to take a middle ground, something that would have been actually 
better for Trump by being a more defensible position for Republicans to take. But no, they came out with no collusion, no Russian help, no Russian interest in Trump whatsoever. They have no evidence for that proposition. Fox News 100 percent backed that conclusion. It was all over the FoxNews.com homepage. Sean Hannity said on television, you know, this just shows what we've been telling you for a year. They're taking the strongest version of this Trump defense that you possibly can. And it's a way of signaling their their loyalty to the president. So in terms of how our checks and balances are working, not well. In terms of how the Trump administration is working with all these departures, not well. In terms of who will join it and who will be allowed to join it, good people are not going to want to come into this chaos. And also, um, Trump does not want good independent people. He wants lackeys and toadies and people who are going to protect him. And this is bad. Like, I, I think I think one should be very upset here. I think, though, that something I would slightly push back on is that we've seen on two recent issues that I think part of the reason why Congress has come to kind of be largely accepting of Trump is because Trump essentially in, you know, and I've written about this before, in his actual administration of his duties, his office has run as kind of a weird Republican, you know, and that's why, you know, there's been a lot of critique of, say, Senate Republicans voting with Trump, you know, 97 percent of the time. And I'm like, of course they will when he is putting forth things that they have been saying they've wanted since 2010. But on both guns and on tariffs, that's when you're starting to see congressional Republicans saying, hang on a second, this isn't what we wanted, even though, that you know, both of these are things that Trump has either voiced support for gun control measures since like, you know, the late 90s, the early 90s and voice support for some sort of tariff system, you know, when he was being interviewed by Playboy in the late 80s. And so I think that there's definitely a sensibility that on this issue, I think there's very much of a sense of a understood quid pro quo, that if they back Trump on all of the Russia investigation and are willing to kind of subsume themselves to him, he will give them what they want, which is basically he'll sign whatever they give him. But Jeff Flake just put forth a bill regarding tariffs yesterday. You're starting to see, you know, Paul Ryan has been trying to work back channels on the tariffs issues since this all came out, which I don't think is going to work because this is the one issue Trump feels extremely strongly about. But I think that there is this understanding that if you give Trump what he gets, you know, congressional Republicans will get what they've wanted since they came into office, you know, in this kind of in the 2010 wave. Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> when we get to our white paper at the end of the episode, it helps shed light on why that dynamic is so potent and why there's actually concern among congressional Republicans that they might lose control of the agenda and therefore need to cater to Trump. But can we take a break? Do you like to learn? Do you like new ideas? I think you do. I think that's why you listen to The Weeds. I know that I do. And that's one of the many reasons that I love The Great Courses Plus. It gives you unlimited access, lets you learn from brilliant, engaging professors and experts about anything that interests you. You can learn about history, science, politics. You could learn a new language. You could learn how to draw. Honestly, I cannot learn how to draw, but I can learn about everything else. They've got over 9,000 lectures that you can watch from any device, or you can listen. If you like podcasts, maybe you want an audio experience. With the Great Courses Plus app, they've got an audio-only mode. You can switch between audio and video. You can walk someplace, listen to the audio, then you get there, you're online, you can switch to video. Super cool. Of course, we're recommending lately thinking about cybersecurity from cybercrime to cyber warfare. There's been sort of a big news topic, but you might sort of be reading this and wonder, like, what can I do as, as an individual? The cybersecurity expert, Paul Rosenzweig, he explores big data, digital espionage, and most importantly, he tells you about what you can do in your own life. 
life. Just sort of secure your identity, secure your passwords, and be safe out there. So I know you're going to love The Great Courses Plus, and more importantly, they know that you're going to love The Great Courses Plus. And that's why they want to offer you a special free month of unlimited access to all of their lectures. Not some, all of them, for a month. But you got to use our special URL. So start your special free one-month trial today. How? Here's how. You go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. Out of the news, but sort of perennially in the news these days. Definitely in the tweets. Is political correctness on campus. It's a thing. I find this term to be a very vague one and in some ways a, a problematic sort of debate. But what, what inspired me to do an article on the subject at long last was that last week, not one, but two different New York Times op-ed columns, one by David Brooks and one by Barry Weiss, both put in their lead the fact that Christina Hoff Summers was heckled down at a speaking appearance at Lewis and Clark College Law School in Portland, Oregon. Christina Hoff Summers is like a professional anti-feminist. And I have various feelings about her, about Barry Weiss's bizarre decision to just like lie to the New York Times audience about who she is, etc. But I thought this was sort of the crux of the matter because like I agree with the people who say that heckler's veto tactics at campus speaking events are a bad thing. But I think there's like a real question of like, does the fact that Christina Hoff Summers got heckled at a small private law school in Portland, Oregon, that I'm going to be really honest, I didn't know this law school existed. And if you described it to me, I would have said that Lewis and Clark College was a college that did not have a law school. Like, it's like a nothing event, but like not one, but two different New York Times columns led with this, right? And there is an interesting thing about journalism is like neither of these columns explicitly have a sentence where they're like, and I am mentioning this because it is a credibly important social issue. But the implication, if you write about this, particularly if like two different conservative columnists both go with this, is that like one of the most important things happening in America is somehow illustrated by this event. So the way the move is being done here is that the idea is that there is a free speech crisis on campus, that there is a rising generation of young, college-educated Americans who they don't believe in free speech. They're uh, increasingly authoritarian. I think that's the term Brooks used, if I'm not uh, misremembering the column. Yeah, and and Brooks said explicitly that, like, he thinks this goes to show that we have a generation of people who, because of identity politics and some failures on the part of the governing establishment as well, he concedes, trying to be sympathetic, no longer believe in reason, like, very, like, big, blunt statements. Like, he's not saying, like, some kids in Oregon did something I don't approve of, but that, like, this is emblematic of a generation-wide wholesale abandonment of the concept of reason and persuasion. Right. And so we're not talking here about 25,000 people descended on this event. Like, this was not that big event. There, there were hecklers at it. But there, there is an effort to pull out of these events. There's, you know, some of them have been, you know, more disquieting. There, there was a event with Charles Murray at Middleton that's become very famous. I think it was at Middleton. It got more physical and Charles 
Miles Murray's uh, academic uh, escort was injured, not terribly, but but nevertheless, like these things shouldn't be these things certainly are, are scary if they get violent. So there have been a couple of these where people who are sort of controversial conservative speakers, particularly on race and gender issues, have been going to campuses. They get heckled um, or deplatformed or whatever, and it gets pulled up into this idea that there is a crisis of sort of quasi like cultural authoritarianism coming up on campuses. There's no longer belief in speech. There's no longer a belief in like, you know, having a debate out, deciding things through reason to discussion and that, that there's something much deeper going on here than, you know, sort of some controversial speakers being met by some controversial tactics that people, I think, reasonably could dislike on either side. Yeah. So I took a look at at some general social survey data because they've had, going back to the 70s, a battery of questions about free speech. They ask people about sort of hypothetical speakers and if they were going to give a speech in your community, would, would you want it to be blocked? So they ask a homosexual, a communist, a person who wants to ban all religion, a person who wants to overthrow the government in a military coup – and a racist. And should you block their speech? And should you block their speech? And, you know, what's interesting is that you you look at these and you can see that the trend toward wanting to allow different speakers to speak is generally upwards, right? Um, in, in the aggregate, it's up for four out of the five, and it's flat for the racist. And then if you look at the racist, you will see that in subgroups, moderate liberals have become less willing to let the racists speak, while everyone else, including far-left people, have become more willing to let the racists speak. The other four categories, everybody is more willing to let them speak. So that's like one thing, right? There, there's a general trend toward more free speech. People are not confused. If, if you think that moderate liberals have become more hostile to people who they think are racists, like that's true, but that's a different sort of conclusion. The other thing that, that you see in this data is that college graduates are more friendly to free speech than non-graduates. You see that people who are left of center are more friendly to free speech than people who are right of center. And that's important to me in terms of like characterizing like what is the trend that is actually happening here? Because college students are people. And so you can look at something on campus, you'd be like, on campus these days, everybody's eating lunch. And like, it's true that on college campuses across America, people are eating lunch, but it's not true that eating lunch is an aspect of campus life, right? And there's very little evidence that I can see that college students or recent graduates of colleges or of elite colleges or however you want to cut this are unusually hostile to the idea of listening to opposing viewpoints. I think all human individuals have a certain level of hostility to people who disagree with them about things. Like that that's why they disagree. But in general, working class people and conservative people are much more inclined to sort of shut down disagreement. And and I think we have, I think, a pretty good psychological understanding of the, the underpinnings of that. There's a strong correlation between ideological viewpoints and one of the big five personality attributes called openness to experience. And it's a little arbitrary. It doesn't seem political, but like people who like to try weird new foods tend to be much more left wing in their political views. And also, in general, just kind of more open to like zany stuff and like weird new ideas that some people find offensive. 
Then the other thing you see, right, is that um, there's an organization called The Fire, which specifically focuses on campus free speech issues. Uh, they report that there are fewer campus speech codes than there were 10 years ago. Uh, they report that there are fewer campaigns to get speakers disinvited than there were 10 years ago. And another thing I saw is a newer GSS question that they've only started asking post 9-11 is, would you want to block an anti-American Muslim clergyman from speaking? Most people do think that an anti-American Muslim cleric should be prevented from speaking. That's the only category of speaker that draws majority support. The trend line on that is flat. And this is a topic that is like missing from the free speech kind of right. panic. And I think it's understandable, right? Like people have been killed by Islamic extremists. And the trend line, it used to be that a lot of people wanted to stop communists from speaking. And then the Cold War ends and people get way more relaxed about communists. After 9-11, people are like really up in arms about anti-American Muslim creatures. That being said, far more Americans are killed by white supremacist groups than are by anti-American Muslims. And something that I think a real disconnect between like white op-ed columnists and people of color in America is that white op-ed columnists tend to see racism as like a total abstraction, whereas whatever they would come down on the Muslim preacher understand that like people are actually afraid of terrorist violence. But like people of color in the United States, it is not unreasonable for them to be afraid of like actual violent acts by white supremacist groups and the exact same radicalization, recruitment, whatever thought process that people of all races have about, uh, you know, Islamic extremists is like a reasonable thing. Now, I don't think Christina Hoff Summers is recruiting people into white nationalist militias. That's like... I think we should just... I don't want this to sound blurry. She's not a white supremacist. Yes, no. right. I, I don't think she's a good example of this thing. She, yes. she does a different thing. Yes, absolutely. Um, but just to say that, like, it's it's worth sympathetically engaging with this if you are a white person, that, like, there's a concern about racism and racists and racist speech and racist violence in the United States that is at least as well grounded as the concern about Islamic extremists and Islamic terrorism. And one thing I do want to raise, this came up kind of during the Barry Weiss brouhaha, which is, has to be one of those events where I was like, off Twitter, do people know about this and or care about this? But one of the groups that has been blocked from speaking on a lot of, you know, on a lot of college campuses are members of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions campaign yep. with regard to Israel. And just last week in Arizona University, it's Arizona State has basically tried to block a Muslim student group for not allowing it to sponsor a speaker until they signed a pledge that the speaker or I think members of the group would not uh, boycott Israel. And I think this is something, you know, Glenn Greenwald has brought it up numerous times. A lot of people kind of on the further left or the libertarian left have brought this up, that when we're talking about campus speech, a lot of it turns into kind of like people trying to stop Christina Huff Summers or Ben Shapiro from speaking. But the group that gets kind of the shaft on a lot of college campuses is BDS or groups that are kind of speaking out against Israel or Israeli policy. And, you know, you've seen in multiple states, you've seen um, state governments trying to pass laws saying that, you know, you cannot boycott Israel. And I think that that's something that, you know, I believe that that's come up again in New York State. And that's something you get from with both Democrats and Republicans is something that came up came up at APAC this past week. It's interesting which speech 
we consider to be important to be free and which speech we're like, no, no, you shouldn't say that. And, you know, I think that it's especially interesting. There was a great piece a couple of weeks ago um, in the Weekly Standard talking about, you know, the issue that college Republicans are facing because college Republicans has responded to this kind of debate by basically realizing if we invite someone controversial, then we get a lot of attention. And then some New York Times op-ed person will write about how sad it was that this person that we tried to invite on purpose to get it to make it controversial got blocked. So, for instance, uh, college Republicans at Berkeley, they invited Milo Yiannopoulos. Is Milo Yiannopoulos a Republican? He is not. Is he a conservative? Not really. Is he like a controversial figure? Most definitely. And there was this great op-ed from a member of college Republicans saying, like, the only reason we're inviting this guy is because we're hoping that it'll make the left mad. And so you're seeing that again and again and again on college campuses in which, you know, conservatives are they are not actually inviting these people in the spirit of reasoned debate. They're not hosting a debate at all. They are inviting people to say something, hopefully, that will be controversial or racist or ridiculous, or that the mere act of inviting them will, quote unquote, trigger the libs. And so I think that, you know, there's there's not a lot of good faith to be had at all in this discussion. No, there's definitely not that. One of the things that I think is important about this discussion is trying to think about the machine by which things are being elevated and what that machine would have meant in other eras of American life. So what is happening now is that there is one attention to this, but two, because of social media and and other things, it's really easy for something that happens anywhere to become something happening in real time everywhere, right? In real time, you can watch Christina Hoff Summers being heckled at Lewis and Clark. In real time, you can be tuning into these things and, you know, the tweets are going viral and there's stuff in the paper the next day, which that was harder 20 years ago. There was a lot less of this. Every conflict on a campus became a possible national issue at the same moment it was happening. And campuses are weird. I mean, they they just have been. I went to Santa Cruz. Weird stuff happened at UC Santa Cruz all the time. I mean, and then you go 30 years before that you had or 40 years before that. And you had, you know, within the University of California system, which is where I'm most familiar with things at Berkeley and others in a very different valence, like the free speech movement back then. You had occupation of of administration buildings. I mean, it has long been the case that campus activism is intense and can even be extreme. But the thing where now it happens no matter where, no matter what its scale, it is a possible national thing where it becomes a, you know, what was a small issue at Lewis and Clark becomes two New York Times op-ed columns. And then the way that, you know, conservatives are understanding what's going on on all campuses, that I think is actually bad in a different way and is not good for sort of anybody involved. Like random college kids feeling their activism oats should not stand in for any kind of broader movement. One college should not stand in for for all colleges. Right. And, and I one think, of the things about colleges yeah. in general is that they're a place where people try on somewhat extreme versions of themselves. They try on extreme ideologies. They try on extreme behaviors. They try extreme drugs. They try extreme forms of partying. For better or worse, that is how we've constructed college in, in this country. And I, I just think that there is a an effort to weaponize college behavior 
that is not going to end in a good place for anybody long term because kids in college, 18 and 19 year olds, they're not ready for national exposure like that. And I'm not saying that in both directions, they shouldn't be more responsible. But, you know, in, in the University of California system, the college conservatives back then were doing all kinds of nutty stuff that was just meant to offend and upset people. And it wouldn't have been good if all that had become national news either, because just college kids are weird and yeah. like they're supposed to be given a little bit of space to just be whether or not that is how like life should work we've decided that like these kids can go to college and like have this time to figure themselves out and you know i think that the national media not getting too excited about what 18 and 19 year olds do on colleges would just be a good rule in general but, and i also think it's worth noting which colleges they are like you mentioned the Charles Murray speaking at Middlebury. Middlebury is one of the most expensive schools in the country. And, you know, there was a similar instance at uh, Evergreen State College, which if you asked me to identify where Evergreen State College is, I could not do it. You know, I went to the University of Michigan and we had our whole thing, you know, when there was a whole debate about affirmative action that involved lawsuits. And, you know, Al Sharpton came to campus and it got really weird and strange. But it was just like I was like, I'm on a college campus. Of course, it's getting weird and strange. We have a yearly hash bash, which is celebrating marijuana. Of course, this is happening. It's Ann Arbor. But the idea of this flattening of college life, most Americans who go to college, go to col go to state schools or go to community colleges. They are not going to Middlebury or Lewis and Clark Law School. They are going to schools that are definitely like more recognizable to everyday Americans or they're not going to school at all. And so I think that this idea that every college becomes Middlebury or every college becomes, you know, Yale with the Halloween costumes incident of a couple of years ago is it's very strange to me. But I, I, I want to make a stronger claim than the like anti-anti claim, because I think a, a certain number of people who are propounding the like PC freak out take note of that and it's like, well, you guys are just upset that I'm calling attention to this. But like, why would you say it? Like, I, I think there are like serious wrong claims being advanced in the name of anti-political correctness. One of them is not taking seriously the privateness of small private colleges, right? So like at Wellesley, men cannot attend, right? Now, that would be a crazy principle to apply writ large to American higher education to say that, like, just men can't go to college, right? Like, that would be terrible. To say that all colleges should be single sex would be not quite as terrible as no men can go to college, but also really bad. But to say that a small private liberal arts college in Massachusetts cannot choose to be all women would be also terrible. And illiberal. It would be specifically illiberal, right? Like I went to a, a private uh, K-8 school, right? And it was run by the Episcopal Church. And like you had to go to chapel every Wednesday and all the kids had to appear in a Christmas pageant. And like obviously public schools in America could not operate on that principle. But also obviously private schools can't, right? I don't know that it would be a good idea for a college to establish a no conservative campus speakers rule, but it's certainly acceptable for a college to try that out, right? Like it would not be acceptable for the University of Michigan, a public institution with many thousands of students, right? But like it's a viable concept that Lewis and Clark College should have a no conservative campus speakers. Like that might be a terrible idea and like maybe nobody would learn anything, but like these are private institutions and like they can – 
they can do what they want, right? And they can also say, we're going to have a super strict rule where if you heckle a speaker, you get expelled right away. Like, that's a reasonable potential disciplinary concept. And like, you have to let institutions do what they want. Another thing is, I think that there's a real double standard being employed here, not just in a like trolly ha ha ha, but like the exact same people who I see like most fired up about the excesses of campus political correctness also seem to me to be the ones demanding that Louis Farrakhan be no platformed lately. I really sympathize with the view that Louis Farrakhan should be no platformed. And I kind of see like, well, but you know, like right around the edges, it's like, well, are you saying, would you counter protest him versus heckling? But like, it's a, it's a tough one. But like to say a certain person person is like really despicable and I really don't want him to have access to prominent public platforms. That's like a normal human reaction. And that some of what's going on here is that there is a substantive disagreement about some of these figures, right? That masquerading is like a process disagreement about free speech on campus is a substantive disagreement about is Charles Murray a valuable public intellectual who agree or disagree? We can all learn a lot from listening to him. Or is Charles Murray the latest in a centuries-long you know, procession of racism masquerading as science? And it would be way more constructive to like actually talk about that, right? right. In which case... You know, I, I think you have a different debate. And then last, there's an enormous amount of fudging between hardcore heckler's veto tactics, which I think there's like a, a real problem with at institutions that that are public or or that, you know, want to, to have open-mindedness. And then the word political correctness is used to cover that, but like also to cover people who want to see more uh, women given jobs as directors in Hollywood, right? Like both of those things are political correctness. There's like a conceptual universe gapping between them. And I think that a real disservice is done by associating like all anti-racism and all feminist advocacy with a particular tactical approach that is not unique to that political view. Let me add one more thing here that I, I think is when we're separating this out into what issues it is actually bringing up, I, I think is important too, which is when you listen to critics, I, I think particularly here, some of the critics on the left of this behavior. And, and when it comes to no platforming, I would count myself among it. I'm not comfortable with the sort of heckler's veto stuff. But what they're saying is it is important. And by the way, Barack Obama has said this. It is important to, to learn how to listen to things you disagree with. It's important to, to be able to have these reasoned debates. It's important to be able to meet speech with more speech. It's important to be able to you know hear the best ideas that are, are, are against your own and, and know how to respond. Now, that's all true. It's also important to know how to organize against things in society that are wrong or problematic. And so, you know, putting to the side for a minute the question of whether or not you people have made a correct judgment on whether, you know, a Milo or whoever is problematic in that way, the idea that there is nothing to be learned in campus activism, the idea that the hard thing in life is not organizing against racism and trying to make America a less racist country, but is being able to sit quietly and hear people say things that are racist. I, I'm actually just not sure that's true. Now, 
I would not want to be, and I understand why people going to these colleges would not want to be, the person on whom people are practicing how to organize against racism. Uh, and I really understand and am probably in all this more sympathetic to the students who one – of, one of the reasons I don't think your earlier point here worked, Matt, is that the institutions here, Lewis and Clark or through Lewis and Clark, whoever was doing the inviting, made a decision to have these speakers come. Right. It's not that they've decided to one of the weird things about all this is that the institutions are often on the other side of the students. The students sure. themselves are divided. But in terms of the question of like, what are we what are our children learning? Some of our children are trying to learn how to be there and have a debate and listen to a debate and hear ideas that don't agree with. And other of our children are trying to learn how to organize to make society what would be, in their view, a more just place. I very much understand the defense of being able to to learn from speakers coming and speakers you disagree with coming and, you know, learning how to meet a reason to argument you don't like with a reason to argument that, that you believe in. But I also think that there is a, a real diminishment of the value of activism in this uh, conversation. And I say that again, I am not comfortable with the no platforming stuff, but I also think activism has a tendency to make people uncomfortable. That is, that is how it goes. I, I, had a, I did an interview on my podcast with Stephen Pinker a couple of weeks ago. And one thing I found troubling in the way he thought about this was he just there was very little role that I could tell in his understanding of all this for activism to 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 lead to social change. He had a much more reason driven idea of how social change happens than I do, which is that, you know, a lot of social change comes from activism that makes people uncomfortable, that is at times unpopular while it is happening. But that's also something people learn on college campuses. And I think it's been something that overall in American life has been positive. So I do think that within this conversation, there needs to be some at least dealing with the fact that in addition to something that, that is going on here being um, reason debate, that people are trying to learn how to organize for a world they prefer. And that that also has value. I also think that on the notion, you know, I spend a lot of my time kind of watching the right and covering the right. And it's interesting to me to see that, like, what the right has construed as being politically incorrect and therefore good. And like that these ideas that are, for one, politically incorrect are ergo naturally good ideas that should be shared are basically people coming to college campuses and arguing, well, black people just aren't as good as white people. And that is something that you know, the right will defend your right to say that from here into eternity. And you can get any college speaker, you know, when you look at the right on college campuses, they are not trying to get people on campus to talk about the need for tax reform. They're not bringing people on from like, you know, well, some Economic. of them are. We just don't hear about it because exactly. they don't get. Yeah, exactly. Protested. They don't get. They don't get protests and they don't get attention. They're but like they're trying to get people who are essentially willing to, you know, basically willing to say like, you know, they're trying to get Richard Spencer. Sure. There really is this sense that because people think these opinions are bad, these opinions must therefore be actually good. And I think it's kind of ridiculous that at the same time you have people who are so concerned about that. The voices of, say, you know, Black Lives Matter or these certain ideas, those are actually politically un incorrect on the right. And therefore, they should be limited. That someone arguing like, no, actually, black people are as good as white people. That seems to be actually controversial within some circles on the right. And yet that this kind of the fetishization of political incorrectness as being like, not only is it politically incorrect, but that 
by itself means it's good and worthy and we should give people book deals and podcasts and turn them into like Jordan Peterson is really confusing to me that there, you know, it's just, it's not so much that, you know, we should hear all speech. It's that we should hear politically incorrect speech because it's good speech, but politically correct speech is now bad speech. And I think that's a great lead in I to agree. our next segment. Ezra, tell us all about it. So Larry Bartels is a political scientist at Vanderbilt University. Uh, I think one of the political scientists doing the most interesting work out there. You've heard us discuss um, the book he did with Chris Aikens, which is Democracy for Realists. Um, and, and he just came out with a kind of fascinating draft paper uh, called Partisanship in the Trump Era. And what he's looking at in this paper is what are the actual divisions within the, the the partisan political landscape? He is taking as his starting point this idea that people have, that, that you hear a lot in the, in the media, particularly that the Republican Party is deeply divided. Probably the Democratic Party is deeply divided. We're in a period of party fracture where we might see the parties transform in the coming couple of years into wholly different coalitions than they actually are. And so he digs pretty deep into the public opinion data and finds that that's really not true. <laughs> and in particular, what he finds is that for all the talk of Trumpism being this hostile invasion of the Republican Party, Republicans are not particularly divided by cultural conservatism. They're just not. If you look at how they feel about the American flag or the English language or negative feelings towards Muslims and immigrants and atheists and gays and lesbians, like Republicans are, are on the same page. They are divided on the size of government. The Republican Party is a lot more internal division over whether there should be Medicare and who should get income support than they are over whether immigrants are good. Comparatively, the Democrats are not that divided on whether government is good. They're not that divided on economic issues. They're much more divided on cultural issues. They uh, one fourth are closer to the average Republican position than to the average position of the Democratic Party. I think this paper in an interesting way really relates to, to the conversation we're just having, because one reason this political correctness stuff does so well in the media is that a lot of Democrats, probably a lot of older, whiter Democrats who feel a little like uncomfortable with new gender language on campuses and worry that they might be the kind of folks who say the wrong thing, get protested. It, it keys into their discomfort, too, whereas, you know, there just isn't that kind of division inside the two parties on things like uh, economics. And and it speaks to the dynamic between Trump and members of Congress, right? Trump has head faked a number of times in the direction of exploiting the grassroots Republican disagreement about economic. I mean, it's, it's important to get the terminology clear here, right? Like the reason that people have the impression that Republicans are very united in the economics is that Republican Party elected officials are completely united. Right. What Bartels is showing is that rank and file Republicans actually disagree a fair amount about the role of government. And so there is the possibility that Donald Trump could exploit something like that, that if Donald Trump went rogue and was like, yeah, let's not cut taxes for rich people. Which is things he said. Right. Exactly. That like he would not lose his base over that, but that actually large segments of the Republican Party base agree with that kind of thing. And so the Republican Party needs to keep its elites on the same page on economics to like present a consistent united front that like if you want 
culture warriors for conservatism in government. You have to pick warriors for small government, that that's like your only option out there. And with Democrats, it's, I think, an exactly parallel situation, that there are a fair number of economically moderate, culturally progressive people in Democratic Party politics professionally. But what you're seeing here is that in the real world, there are much more rank and file people who are loyal to Democratic Party economic positions but are uncomfortable with at least some of its cultural politics. And, you know, it makes sense, right? If you if you were to like broadly describe, right, like an older Latino gentleman, you would say, you know, that guy, like he's probably a Democrat. He probably really agrees with Democrats in economic issues. Probably agrees with Democrats on some cultural stuff, like about immigrants. But like, does he maybe not have super progressive views about transgender issues? Like, yeah, you know, like, why not? Right. That would not be surprising at all. But in Congress, it's like Democrats are fracturing over bank regulation, but like hold quite firmly about abortion and and other culture war topics. Right. And I think that that goes to something. It was interesting reading this paper and also engaging in some arguments on the right about what is the role of never Trumpers now, you know, because the never Trump concept, you know, for some people, it ended November 8th, 2016. But for some people, it's no, like, no, we have to continue standing against this administration, even though on policy the administration has, as I said, largely done kind of what a, you know, if you could build your ideal Republican from the never Trump perspective, he's kind of done what you would want if, you know, if Trump didn't have a Twitter account. And so it's interesting to see that kind of unified voice and unified policy when there has been, you know, all this talk about like, oh, you know, Republicans are divided. And like, I think that this paper brings up the important point that on a lot of issues, they're not. There really isn't as much intra-conflict as you know, we might think that we're seeing based on the conversations you're having between, say, commentary and the American conservative or something like that. And another thing about never Trumpism is it just turns out there is very little of it. So one of the things that, that Bartels does look at is whether or not there's been change in partisanship between 2015 when Trump was coming up as a national figure, but, but still seemed very, very unlikely as a Republican nominee and late 2017, so well into his presidency. And he finds that there are very, very few Democrats who became Republicans during this period, and and the few there were seem to have liked Trump. And similarly, there is very, very little in the way of Republicans who left the Republican Party in this period. And the few who did appear to have liked Hillary Clinton. They were older women who had very favorable views towards Clinton. But overall, there's enormous partisan stability. There is not a Donald Trump remaking the Republican Party in his images. There is not a a rump of never Trumpers leaving. They're just like the parties look the same. Um, If you looked at all this data and just like X'd out all the names so you couldn't tell anything happening, you wouldn't have thought anything weird happened in American politics during this period at all, Right, which I think really goes to show its stability. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because you see so many people having the conversation about like, when is the time for the libertarian moment? When is the time for just kind of this breakout? And I think what we're seeing through this paper is like, there, there isn't one. And I think, you know, Never Trumpers got a lot of attention because it was interesting to see people like George Will basically saying, like, I'm out. This is ridiculous. It was it was interesting to see, people you know, how people respond to such an existential threat to what they conceived of as the Republican Party. But at the same time, it wasn't actually important. It was a lot of kind of a lot of kind of sound and fury. 
I think that one other thing I was thinking about is that it really goes to, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, is the Democratic Party moving further left? And I think that that's something that I think this paper looks at in a really interesting way by talking about the kind of intra-divide on cultural issues where kind of people have talked before about the death of the blue dog Democrat. But at the same time, I think that there is a sense that there's the Democratic Party in Congress and then there's the Democratic Party if you're 27, 28, and then there's the Democratic Party if you're an older member of union. And then there's just these different iterations of one party. And it really gets to just how challenging Democratic Party politics really are. The other thing that I saw in here that I I think is, is really interesting is that there's another confirmation in here that moderate voters are sort of a myth, even though voters who are torn between the political parties are not that there's a there's a chart sort of showing where people line up on uh, cultural versus economic type stuff and and there are a lot of um, people who are cross pressured on the chart but they tend not to be like toward the center of the axis it's usually that they're off in one corner or the other typically that they are. T- somewhat conservative on cultural issues but somewhat liberal on economic issues and they feel torn, right? And so you would appeal to a voter like that presumably by either breaking sharply with your party on like one or two topics that people pay a lot of attention to and that, you know, kind of make a lot of sense or by um, raising the salience of kind of one issue that that you have. I, I was thinking an interesting sort of case study in this. He's kind of abandoned it, but it used to be that Bernie Sanders was like very left wing on everything except guns. And he wasn't just like moderate on guns, but was actually like quite far right on guns. It wasn't that left wing on immigration either. Well, the party dynamic was sort of different. But yes, I I, I mean, what he did was he had like a signature break with the left issue. And like it was guns. It was like a clear signal to people who might agree with him about some things, but disagree with him about other things that like, I'm with you, man. On this one. And you can imagine that working. You can imagine there being some people who keep voting Republican but actually have some disquiet with Republican economic positions but love the Republican stance on guns. And then a Democrat comes along and it's like, at last, I'll try voting for this guy. Now, you know, how many people? Is guns exactly the right issue? Blah, blah, blah. It's, It's all very complicated. But compare that to the sort of more conventional idea of just like, stepping two inches away from the base, but like on all topics across the board. And there's very little evidence, I think, that that would actually get anybody on anything. That there are voters who don't like the parties and options they have, but they're not necessarily in the middle. But one of the things I think this is just interesting about when you think about it in terms of Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or just any presidential candidate at all is understanding that Presidential candidates are walking this somewhat weird line between party bases that are split in one way and party elite structures and donor structures split in another way. So the Democratic Party base is more split on cultural issues. The base is not nearly as monolithically 
pro-life or pro-immigration. Um, one of the 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 attitudes that splits the base. So there's a 37 point difference between Republicans and Democrats on the idea that discrimination against whites is a bigger problem than discrimination against blacks. That is, you know, a difference, but 37 points is not 100 points. It's not right. it's not huge. Democrats are dealing with the base that is often more culturally conservative uh, among elites and among donors. It is often more economically conservative. And then Republicans have sort of exactly the opposite. They're dealing with an elite class that's extremely unified uh, uh, around economic conservatism um, and a base that is a lot less unified around economic conservatism. And so, you know, sometimes you see players get through that on their own sort of personal cognizance, right? They just have so much rooting within the party or they're able to inspire the party so much that they're able to quiet some of these disagreements. Sometimes players run through this by just over overwhelming one side or the other. Oddly enough, Donald Trump has sort of done both. He overwhelmed the doubts about him during the campaign and then let go of all of his economic heterodoxies with the exception of trade tariffs um, once he got into office. But but it is interesting that the elite classes don't mirror the base classes really at all. I mean, if you were just looking at it from the perspective of what goes on in Washington, you would think that um, Democrats were more divided on economics and Republicans on culture. And it's just literally the opposite. I, I've often considered myself sort of a, a skeptic of like money and politics type stuff. And I think a lot of the specific claims that are made along those lines, like representative so-and-so voted this way and he also got $3,000 from you know a company, don't really hold water. But when you look at the macro picture, yep. it is very hard to avoid the conclusion that like the basis of official politics is being structured by donors' idiosyncratic views much more than by mass opinion. Well, and the other piece of that, I, I agree with that. And I would just add to it that I think one thing that donors can kind of stand in for is the opinions of kind of highly educated, often high income elites generally. And I think that one one way that money in politics operates is also just by structuring the classes of people that politicians hang out with and and what their social universes are like, where they get yelled at if they, you know, part ways, who they talk to on a weekend. And uh, I think that's part of it here, too. I'd be very curious to see divisions of this kind broken out by education and income levels. And my gut is it would mirror the divisions we're talking about. And I think that's part of it, too. Politicians are, to some degree, who they hang out with, who they spend time with, part of that is money, right? They go to these fundraisers and they have dinner with people, the fundraisers and so on. But it's also partially just they are elites. And they hang out with other elites. Um, they make friends, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the circles they travel in. And they don't want to do things that, that it, like literally they don't want to do things, right? They, they, they believe in the things that their social worlds believe in. And so I, I think that's a piece of it too. I think that it's money, but it's also just what has become sort of dominant culture among American elites, which is somewhat more economically moderate, but a lot more culturally liberal. And I think that that even goes back to our discussion about political correctness on campuses is that, you know, this is an issue for elites because these are the circles in which elites live. You know, Barry Weiss was at Columbia. You have people who are like, I went to Yale. I went to Harvard. I went to Middlebury. Of course, this is an incredibly important issue for me. You know, this is where I might send my children. This is something that 
you know, these are the conversations I'm having on weekends. You know, this is why you're able to get, you know, Wisconsin state government to try and start cracking down literally on, you know, on hecklers by saying that, you know, you risk being expelled if you are shown to have done this. Whereas Wisconsin is much less willing to act on the issues facing, you know, blue collar families who could not dream of being able to send their kids to like University of Wisconsin Whitewater, let's say. And so I think that that goes back to these conversations. You know, there's a reason why these conversations are being had. And it's worth considering that these conversations are being had because these conversations are taking place among these people, among these elites. And, you know, if you're David Brooks or something like that, you're actually not the voice of, you know, the masses of the Democratic Party, but you are the voice of a select sliver of the Democratic Party that happens to get a lot of attention in these certain circles. All right. And if you yourself listening at home want to be a member of the opinion elite, uh, you should really be listening not just to the weeds, but to all many Vox podcasts, including especially Today Explained, coming to you every day, explaining things, helping you know what's going on. You could also listen to Ezra's show if you if you like that kind of thing. Eh. You got any good guests? I do, actually. I think Weed's listeners will, will like this week. I had on Jennifer Carlson, who's a sociologist who focuses on the identities that gun carrying creates, uh, particularly among men. Uh, she's done some really fascinating work uh, in Michigan, looking at folks who do both open and concealed carry and how that changes their experience of the world, their idea of America, of what is good citizenship. I think thinking about the gun issue in America as an issue of identity, as a form of identity politics, helps clarify it quite a bit. If you're interested in that debate, and I think right now a lot of us are, I think you'll like that. Uh, that's the Ezra Klein Show this week with Jennifer Carlson. All right. And with that, uh, let me thank our engineer, Griffin Tanner, our producer, Bridget Armstrong. Thank you, Jane, for filling in today. Uh, thanks, everyone. Uh, the Weeds will be back on Friday.